0: So, what is it, 34 of Generation Jihad Bill? Is that what we're up to now, 34? Uh, we are up to 34, Tom. Uh, hello, everyone. I'm Tom Jocelyn. I'm here, of course, with Bill Rogio. We are senior fellows at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and we run FDD's Long War Journal which these days we are backlogged. I've got a lot of stuff to write to get up there. Just haven't been able to get it up there, Bill. We got a ton of articles to write for something. You know, we're in that weird spot where Washington has decided once again that none of this really matters and that the job is basically over and don't worry about it. And yet I seem to have a lot of stuff on my list to write write about. How about you?
1: Yeah, Tom, it's difficult to prioritize it. It's um, sometimes, and it's just difficult mentally to deal with this too. As uh, our listeners know, we like to complain a lot, and this can be our therapy session and. um so yeah, we'll leave it at that.
0: We got a lot to write about and talk about though. Um, this week we're going to do sort of a um, just sort of a news recap or recent events uh, recap. You know, now we're not always basically going to be right on top of the news. If something happens, we're not going to necessarily do it that day, but we'll do it you know as quickly as we can. Uh, we had a previous episode with with Lieutenant General H R McMaster. That was a very long episode. I think it was a good sort of rundown on different issues and and talking about this stuff. Um, you know, this week we're going to talk a little bit about some recent news stories or some things that are happening, principally in the world of Al-Qaeda, I think. Right, Bill? I think it's all we'll focused on. Uh, yeah, definitely Al-Qaeda, Tom. That's, that's been the story for the last several weeks. Uh, sure. So just before or about a week and a half, I guess, before Thanksgiving, something like that, uh, the New York Times confirmed that um, the deputy emir of Al-Qaeda, a guy known as Abu Muhammad al-Mazri, also known as Abdullah Ahmed Abdullah, You know, longtime Al Qaeda veteran, somebody who's been wanted by the US government since the 1990s, that he was killed in this um, basically assassination operation inside Iran, inside a a well to do suburb of Tehran uh, by a pair of Israeli assassins riding on a motorcycle. Um, You know, this is, he was also killed alongside his daughter, Miriam, who was the widow of Hamza bin Laden. Now we've been tracking Abu Muhammad or writing about him for a long time. Abu Muhammad al-Mazri, which of course means the Egyptian, he's somebody who's well known in in counterterrorism circles. He's somebody who's been well known to the U.S. government for you know decades now, or more than two decades. Um, it was obvious that the U.S. was keeping tabs on him inside Iran. You can see by various statements by the State Department and others that sort of you know the U.S. and intelligence officials, counterterrorism officials, were tracking him there and tracking others who were there. Um, the kind of the surprising thing was that he was killed in this targeted assassination, uh, presumably, reportedly, by the Israelis. Um, this is something that is new and unique when it comes to the story of senior al-Qaeda in Iran. Right, Bill? Now, can you think of anybody going through throughout all the years that al Qaeda's had senior personnel in Iran? Can you think of anybody who's ever been targeted there? I can't.
1: No Tom, I to me this is one of the, the the things that really stunned me about this. We've known for 19 years that senior al-Qaeda leaders, the top level leaders as mid-level operatives, key operatives, key commanders, their families um have been sheltering in Iran and yet in all the 19 years um this is the first. So one time in 19 years, that the U.S. or actually it wasn't even the U.S. It was the apparently the Israelis Israel is acting had, at the behest of the U.S. Reportedly, at the behest of the U.S., reaching out and and targeting an Al Qaeda leader, and so you know everyone. There's a couple of things about this and I hope I'm not the, uh, jumping the gun here, but to me, uh, you know, touting this as a victory to me, it's really. It, it really makes you think about how active Al Qaeda's network has been in Iran. That Al Qaeda's number two and one of the most dangerous and most wanted Al Qaeda leaders was killed there only after 19 years. Um, and yet, who was who else is operating there? Who else?
0: Yeah, I mean, so we're going to get into this about you know who this guy was and everything. I mean, one of the interesting things about all this is that um, you know I. I was going to save this for when we do the Iran-Al-Qaeda episode, but I guess I'll talk about it a little bit here. You remember, Bill, when we we were actively um, advocating for the release of Bin Laden files back in – for years, from really from 2012 – 2011, 2012 to 2017, CIA released most, supposedly all, but mo- really most, we think, of the files in 2017 – And there was this narrative that was put out by some former Obama officials, Uh, one in particular, Ned Price, was very active in doing this, a guy who who basically – his whole shtick is to pretend he's an intelligence professional and really he's just a partisan hack. Um, And one of the – the story that he put out was that um, basically uh, former CIA director Mike Pompeo became secretary of state. They had orchestrated putting these files out in, in a couple years ago, basically to justify a war with Iran. And that there's nothing there's nothing in the files about Al Qaeda and Iran, and, and yet they were gonna, these files were going to be used to justify a war with Iran. It was all totally internally inconsistent nonsense, sort of conspiracy mongering. And of course, nobody we didn't advocate before the files came out that this was going to show anything that, that should lead to war with Iran. When the files came out, we didn't say it should lead to war with Iran. And in the three plus years since then, we haven't argued that these files are the basis for a Acosta's belly for war with Iran. But, you know, this conspiracy theory sort of took hold in some circles there. This guy, the guy pushed it. Um, but, you know, the funny thing about all this is here you have, you know, now you know, you know, the whole idea was there's nothing to the Iran al-Qaeda story. It's just these warmongers making this up, which is all nonsense, folks, you know. But here you have the number two of al-Qaeda who was – According to the New York Times report, living in Iran for the last five plus years, operating in Iran, and uh, alongside his daughter, when there's more to that story as well, um, you know, and you know, everybody, the Times and others were looking at this. Well, this is surprising. The Times reported because you know, what is he doing in Iran? Well, the, I mean. Holy cow. I mean, you really. Tom that, that, that was the most laughable part of the report, given, especially given the fact
1: that the New York Times has reported on senior al Qaeda leaders living in Iran. And all of a
0: sudden they're surprised by this. It's just, laugh. you know, I mean, this is this is this story. The Iran al Qaeda story is probably, you know, it's one of those ones that I actually I am actually sick of talking about it, even though I have to talk about it because I've written about it a lot. And part of the reason I'm sick of talking about it is because it's mired in this this sort of framework that's just post 2003 Iraq, which is just larded with mythology and really just stupidity and ignorance, you know, where every, every story that you talk about, anytime you talk about Iran interacting with Al Qaeda, you know, there's, there's some people like this guy, Ned Price and others who immediately try and portray it as some sort of active warmongering, which is really idiotic. Um, but, you know, here, here's this guy Abu Muhammad al-Masri now is gunned down, you know, well, well-to-do suburb of Tehran and nobody disputes that he was there living his life really, and that he was, Acted freely, we've reported on him being there. We, you know, even there was a Al Qaeda guy, of course. As I, you know, uh, I've talked about Abu Qasim or al- Aduni, al- uh, you know, the Jordanian guy. He was in Syria. He wrote about how Abu Muhammad al-Mazri and al Atto were both, you know, basically living freely, living their lives in Iran, and were weighing in on affairs. The UNs reported on that. Obviously, the State Department was aware of it. Obviously, the Israelis and U.S. counterterrorism officials were aware of it. So, you know, I just was looking at this story thinking, who the hell needs the Bin Laden files to talk about, you know, senior Iran guys – sorry, senior al-Qaeda members being in Iran when you have active intelligence like this that post-dates Bin Laden's death by a number of years, you know?
1: Hey, Tom, and real quick, I mean they use the same – well, then would Ned Price be arguing that his own treasury department – was pushing for a war with? Yeah, it was Rand Obama's Treasury and State Secret Departments. I've
0: made this point. I made yeah. this is why I'm sick of talking about this because I've just made this point right. so many times now. I just it's like you know it gives me a headache. You know, from July 2011 to July 2016, it was Obama's Treasury and State Departments that routinely and over and over again pointed to the senior al-Qaeda leaders being operating in Iran or al-Qaeda facilitators operating in Iran under an agreement with the Iranian regime. This wasn't one of these things where, you know, the the official position of the U.S. government, State Department, Treasury Department, under President Obama, as the Obama administration was seeking some form of detente in the Iranian nuclear accord uh, with the regime, uh, you know, they're the ones that are making this case over and over again. But yet, somehow the conventional wisdom, which you see reflected in the Times reporting on this and other reporting on this, is that somehow these two don't cooperate or can't collude with one another. And it just, it makes me, you know, I, I, you know, you know, Bill, I'm sort of fascinated with the epistemology of all this, and of course, you have to of you course. have to do with the political layer, which is all, you know, well, we, garbage. Yeah, we've we said enough about that. I think that we, you know, how we think about the political pol- political layer on all this stuff, um, and and the ideological layer that you can see in, in some of this stuff, and we're gonna I'm gonna take apart some of what, um, price and others spread around that time in a future episode. I'm definitely gonna do that as part of the Iran Al Qaeda stuff because I'm gonna eviscerate that whole position, but, um. Their whole argument. I'm just going to eviscerate it. But talking about this here now, with, with with what's going on here, you see this conventional wisdom in the New York Times reporting on this. You know, it's just surprising, you know, because they're just bitter enemies, Iran and Al Qaeda, that he would be there. And you know, it's just surprising to me that people can't process basic facts. The conventional wisdom is that Iran and Al Qaeda can't possibly cooperate because of their theological or ideological differences. This has been debunked by the the sources of conventional wisdom, which are U.S. government assessments, really. Over and over again. In other words, there is no there is no real ana- analysis that that derive this conventional wisdom. The conventional wisdom is based on ignorance, you know. And if you go back to the 9-11 commission report, for example, this bipartisan commission found exactly the opposite that their differences in ideology and religion did not preclude cooperation. In fact, that they were able to strike bargains going back to the earliest days of Al Qaeda's time in the Sudan. Again, I don't want to give it all away. We're going to talk about this. But Abu Muhammad al Almazri was part of that. This is a guy whose career and at this nexus between Iran and Al-Qaeda goes all went all the way back to the early nineteen nineties. And yet here we are sitting here talking about this as if this is to some people, it was sort of shocking or a surprise. And I just
1: yeah. Yeah. Tom, and, and, you know, on the war issue, and I know we've said this numerous times, but it just bears repeating. You and I have been very clear. We do not advocate launching a war against Iran. We have cons, we have very serious questions about our political and military leadership and our performance over, and this is not an indictment on our fighting men and women in theater. It's, it's the political and military leadership itself. Um, they can't win wars. They can't prosecute wars. They can't remain committed to a cause. And when I see what's happened in Iraq and in Afghanistan and Somalia and Libya and in other theaters, uh, I can't advocate for the U.S. military to put uh, um, put U.S. troops in harm's way in Iran. We can't win the wars we're currently involved in. We have to pretend we have to end them honorably and these so-called endless wars. And that's the mantra nowadays
0: so, anyway. I mean, you know, I mean, at same, by the same token, I have a lot of misgivings as we've talked about about just pulling out entirely because you're just allowing this jihadist to uh, take, to, jihadis yes, to take over, you know. But the point is that you should be able to talk about senior Al Qaeda figures being in Iran without having to to deal with this prism of you know, oh, you're trying to justify war with Iran, which you know I think the people that know us and actually know our work know that's not true. But you have this politicized layer on all this stuff that you have to deal with that we you know, dealt with a little bit in twenty seventeen when, when the bin Laden files were released. And I, I still'm gonna take apart that whole nonsense at the time, just in a future episode, because I think it's worth doing for the just for the history books and for people to sort of understand just how how dumb a lot of the conversation about this stuff is in Washington in these circles, you know. And it is stupid, you know, that's that's the bottom line. And ignorant. Um, but so here's Abu Muhammad al-Mazri who's in, in you know in a well-to-do suburb of Tehran. Um, apparently in a neighborhood teeming with IRGC, no surprise there, right? We know that Iran Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps has been, you know, very active in exporting the Khomeini revolution, but has also, you know, it's, its interests have converged with al-Qaeda on a number of occasions. There's a whole historical pattern there as well. And, you know, so they also killed his daughter, Miriam. Now there's some reporting, we haven't confirmed this, but it's in the reporting, I saw some Associated Press and some other Various reports that Miriam, uh, his daughter, was actually active within Al Qaeda as well. Worked with her late husband, Hamza bin Laden, um, basically, and helped manage his affairs. And that she may have actually been playing an operational role as well within Al Qaeda at the time of her death. Of course, I have no way of confirming that. You know, no way of, of getting inside, inside sort of baseball there within Al Qaeda. You know, this is something that the intelligence officials are saying. Um, wouldn't surprise me. Right. But um, no, like, definitely not, Tom. I mean, they love to have the bin Laden name out
1: there and Al Qaeda has always had an active woman's branch. And, and just real quick, Tom, that neighborhood, I would, I, I, my understanding from talking to people in the intelligence community, is basically like killing Osama bin Laden in Abbottabad, which is basically the West point of Pakistan. That's the kind of level of security that was there. That just shows how Iran really
0: was sheltering this guy. Um, Not the bill. They can't. They can't possibly cooperate. You know. So, Um, but you know, look, this guy too. I mean, when it comes to this guy's career inside Iran, I mean, obviously there there are you know there's evidence, including from the Bin Laden files, ironically enough, which we've written up, and other other pieces of evidence that you know at times senior Al Qaeda leaders were held in a form of contested uh, sort of detention, and this became a point of conflict between Al Qaeda senior leadership and the Iranians. but, you know, during one of those periods, you know, one of the things that we got the U.S. government to release in 2017 was the wedding video for Hamza bin Laden. And it's Hamza bin Laden getting married to Abu Muhammad al-Masri's daughter, Miriam, inside Iran. And you could see Abu Muhammad al-Masri, the, the, the screenshot that I took at the time from the video when we reported this in 2017 at the Long War Journal. You can see in the screenshot, there's – I think he's in, in the, the screenshot at the top of that piece I wrote – Sitting to Homs's right, the reader's left. You know, we can link to that again so people can see it. That's probably the most recent image of him because if you look at the wanted post that the US government has put out, and the other information they put out about him, they're using this dated photo, I think from Egypt, where he's sitting there in like a tie and a dress shirt, you know, all sort of, you know, very you know, well groomed, clean cut. Certainly a dated image from the 90s, if not earlier. Um, and this was a much more recent image of him uh, that you can see on Hamza Bin Laden's wedding video. And this is a wedding that took place in Iran. And what was interesting about that video was if you look at it, it you know, these guys were not under any form of duress during this ceremony. That's for sure. Uh, this was sort of a festive occasion. You know, uh, they were uh, celebrating this union of Osama's ideological and biological heir to Muhammad al-Mazri's, you know, pro, uh, daughter, offspring. Uh, so this was supposed to be sort of basically the equivalent of a royal wedding within al-Qaeda, and it's taking place inside Iran. Yeah. Any comment on that bill or add to that?
1: No, no, Tom. That's exactly. It's funny when you said royal wedding, I said, that's exactly. They're cementing the marriages within the the great houses of Al Qaeda. That's it's absolutely correct. Yeah. And that wedding, it was very clear. I think we're pretty sure that we saw one of, um, I think it was, uh, Abu Kara Masri, which was Osama, um, sorry, uh, I Ayman al Zawahir. Here he's one of his son in laws. I think he may have been at that wedding. There were some, there seemed to be some notable faces. Who else was there, Tom? I, if, I, if I recall, Mr. If Muhammad
0: I was Mohammed who's the, the is of That was the, the brother was of Islambuli, the assassin of yep. Amr Sadat in Egypt in the early 1980s. Now, of course, Iran has celebrated the assassination of Amr Sadat and praised Halal Islambuli for decades. So you know his brother Muhammad is sort of like royalty himself within Al Qaeda, and you know where is he. They named a street after him in, in, in Tehran. Uh, yeah, after it or after not. H- yeah. H- H- yeah, and I mean Muhammad. Last that so we saw him via social media accounts and pictures, of everything he was in Turkey. He had made his way to Turkey, which is, I guess, the subject for another episode sometime. Um, but you know the, the point. The point is, is that this sort of this wedding video, which certain people like Ned Price dismissed as nothing new, actually had all sorts of new stuff in it. If you. Knew anything about this? Were paying attention, including new, more recent images of Hamza and Abu Muhammad al-Mazri and others who, you know, nobody had seen these guys for years. And here's here's some fresh images of them. And of course, the images of Hamza were used to advertise, you know, the, the reward poster for them and the, uh, you know, the, when the U.S. designated him as a terrorist, they used that image because it was more recent than anything Al Qaeda had put out. Yeah, the, the, the other picture, the last picture they had, he was like a boy. I think he was like looking yeah, like they, seven. Because Al Qaeda wasn't going to put out any. Right. Current images of him for security reasons. And of course, then Hamza was killed sometime, we think, in – he was struck down sometime in 2018, 2019. We're not really sure on the timing of that. He was – the White House confirmed his death in September of 2019, but he had passed away sometime before that. Um, it's one of those things where he may have been hit in a drone strike and then sort of lingered. You know, This is gets into that whole, is he alive, is he dead game, Bill, you know. Yeah, th- Tom, and I think from what I gather on that, and this
1: is not confirmed by any means, but yeah, so this is that part of the, are they dead? I think we should create a game show with this with for Al-Qaeda and Islamic State leaders. But he seems to be killed in, a, or I'm sorry, wounded, gravely wounded in a drone strike in I somewhere either in 2017, 2018, and then he died months, maybe even a year afterwards. But we can't confirm that. But uh it, it just, you know, Al-Qaeda didn't even announce his
0: death, so- There we are. Yeah, but you know, it's interesting looking back, you know, one of the things that we know about Abu Muhammad al mazri in addition to the fact that he was a deputy emir for al-Qaeda, so on reporting to Zawahiri and sort of, we'll say so-called second in line, I guess, in the chain of command, is that, you know, during this infighting that broke out in Syria, um, one of these figures, one of these uh, sort of ideologues within Hayat-Turr al-Sham, which became the center of controversy in al-Qaeda circles and between, you know, competing jihadis, um, one of these officials, you know, leaked on his Telegram feed, and we caught this right away. These succession letters that were put out by members of Al Qaeda Shura Council, and several of these letters were signed by members of Al Qaeda Shura Council, and it showed the Abu Muhammad al Mazari was in that line of succession. Now, it was what's interesting about that when you look at those that line of succession is that basically all the guys identified in that succession line, with the exception of one, Saif al adil who's another Al-Qaeda veteran who goes back to the 1990s, been wanted by the U.S. government since the 1990s, also implicated in the 9th, August 7, 1998 U.S. embassy bombings, which I should have said that right away. Abu Muhammad al-Masri was gunned down on August 7th uh, of this year, according to reporting, which was absolutely meant to be a form of symbolic payback, right? Because this was supposed to be sort of a, a, not only to stop current plotting, but also sort of to be a symbolic sort of revenge or a, a avenging the August seventh, nineteen ninety eight, U.S. Embassy bombings, which were Al Qaeda's most devastating attack prior to nine eleven. And by the way, if you go to the 9-11 Commission report, you can find out that Iran and Hezbollah gave Al Qaeda the tactical expertise for the nine eleven Commission for those attacks. But again, Bill, they can't cooperate. You know,
1: absolutely not. And Tom, you know, just one real quick point on the on the timing of his death. They actually did wait till the anniversary of the of that attack, the Kenyan, the bombing of the embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. Um, you know. I'm always. I'm a big fan. You you take the targets of opportunity when you can. So if if they they actually carried out this attack to kill him, then the intelligence there and the in the operation that's set up in inside of Tehran is really good. Um Just a quick little observation there. I thought of yeah. That no,
0: it's got to spook say, the Iranians that they basically could be this. Yeah, definitely that does. Be this, there's
1: more. Yeah, there's messages within messages in that attack. And not only can we kill a senior Al Qaeda leader in, in in the place of our choosing. They did it on the time of their choosing. And that that's just another layer to the onion that makes got to
0: scare the hell out of the Iranians. Well, and of course, there are other assassinations, including this Iranian scientist. We're not going to get into that now, but take a place which are probably part of this whole picture, obviously. Um, but back to the line of succession. So if you look back at those um, letters that were leaked by this HTS guy, this, Hyatt, this guy from Hayat al-Sham. Um you can see in the letters that Abu Muhammad al mazri was one, in the line of succession and that all the other guys who are in, in this chain are dead with the exception of Saif al right? He's the only one who's alive and he's in presumably still in Iran. That's where he's been for a long time. Um, you know, both he, Abu Muhammad al mazri and Saif al-Ado were um, released in 2015 from some form of detention inside Iran in exchange for an Iranian diplomat who had been kidnapped by AQAP, uh, al-Qaeda, you know, forced this, forced these guys to be freed. And there were five senior Al-Qaeda guys freed at the time, three of whom made their way to Syria, where they were all killed. Um, and now Abu Muhammad al mazri has been killed. And you're left with Saif al-Adil. And if you look at the other guys who were in that line of succession, they've been killed as well. Now, this this fueled speculation, Bill, that um, Al-Qaeda is one or two leaders away from – if they're, they're killed or if they're dead – the whole thing's going to crumble. And I know we saw some people online, you know, sort of repeating this rumor that Al Zawahiri um, died of uh, either natural causes or COVID or something like that. You know, we've been rooting for COVID in that case, the world's tiniest soldier uh, from the beginning when it comes to Zawahiri. But, uh, you know, we've been rooting for, for him all along in, in that one case worldwide. Uh but there's rumor that Zawahiri was is dead or died of natural causes. We haven't seen anything confirming that as of this point. Of course, we're not in Zawahiri's living room, so we don't have any up to date SaaS reports. But the origins of this rumor aren't from people in his living room either. So uh, you know, we don't. There's nothing confirming that at this point. Um, you know, I, yeah. the Telegram. And Tom, I think as okay. Go ahead. Tom. I was just going to yeah, say. You're you know, going to say We, 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 what we, we follow these Al Qaeda Telegram channels, yeah. and they're still. You know, not that this is dispositive because it isn't, but the, you know they're all still saying you know when they, they're quoting old speeches from Zawahiri who's sort of been quiet for a while now, which has fueled speculation about him and status. Um, you know may Allah preserve him or protect him, I mean, which is usually their way of sort of uh, saying you know basically he's still alive. Um, but again, that's not. dispositive because, you know, after, you know, Bill, going back to the Muammar Omar thing, when Mul Omar died sometime in about April 2013 and they covered that up for two years, you can never rule out anything. Right. I mean, who knows? Because the stuff after that Mul Omar, they play weekend at Bernie's Mul Omar's corpse, the Taliban and Al Qaeda did for two years, two plus years. You can never rule anything out. But the point is, we don't see any sort of confirmation at this point or any, anything firm, really, saying that Zawahiri's dead. I mean, there's been been health rumors for him for a long time. Um, certain you know, anything's possible, but I don't see anything confirming that or, or making me want to report that at this point at all. No, we haven't. And, and look, if if
1: they are playing weekend at Zawahiri's, um, and propping him up, and I guess it'd be more live, like weekend at Diamonds, right? So, weekend at Diamonds, sure. Um, <laughs> I just thought the ease kind of matched with Zawahiri's, true, that's true, yeah. But hey, you know, hey, that's how my mind works. Um, look, hey, that was a huge problem for the Taliban, and, and Al Qaeda very likely learned. I mean, you basically. Um, it basically fueled the, 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 support for the Islamic state in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Initially. And yeah. It was whatnot, whatnot. they yeah. got an initial it,
0: bump from that with the IMU defections yeah. from the Taliban because of, in part because of that, but, but in any event. So, I mean, so it's, so it's
1: certainly possible, but we don't see evidence right. of that other than someone putting a post out in social media and people jumping on it. And by the way, you know, on this, this list, it was created in 2005. This is five years ago. That was the succession in 2005. 2015, you're talking about. I'm sorry, 2015. No, it was, it was, yeah, no, five it was years. before
0: that. It was actually because the, 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 I actually took those off of Telegram. And so Waheshi was, was on the list in the line of succession, oh, was right. killed in June of 2015. The um, letters definitely predated June 2015, um, maybe even 2014, 2013. Right. It was definitely. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's even, even more. Longer time, than, even, longer even, than, more than five point. years. Yeah, longer
1: than five years yeah. ago. Yeah. So, so, I mean, obviously things change. I mean, you know, our su- succession for. Uh, military and political leadership and has changed dramatically here in five years. And um again, I'm not, we, you and I are very clear that Al-Qaeda has problems, the targeting killings cause issues, but there's people in the wings. And then there's people that we don't know of that aren't, you know, household names to everyone. You know, Abu Muhammad al mazri wasn't a household name. And we were told what by, uh,
0: um, well, he was—he we was actually one of the more well-known ones. Actually, oh, yeah, sure. There are guys sure. you and I could point to who are far less known. You know, yeah. But how how can uh, how can Miller get away with
1: telling you know about us Chris Miller now his, the acting secretary? Chris Defense. Miller, yeah, right. He, he tells us in September that there's only one Al Qaeda leader left. That's Zawahiri. Yeah, and yet we killed two of them in that time frame.
0: Right, the other one being uh, Hassan rouf who was killed by Afghan right. forces in Afghanistan. You know, uh, he was the head of As-Sahab. Um, you know, chief media figure in Al Qaeda, he's been killed as well. So anyway, you get you, get, you put together these the string of targeted killings to the Al Qaeda senior leadership, and you have this idea. You can see some people are running with that. Um, you know, Al qaedas going to crumble. You know, if Zawahiri did succumb to the world's tiniest soldier, or you know, if uh, one or two more guys, in the whole network is going to fall apart. Right now, a couple thoughts on that. I mean, one, look, anything always possible, right? I mean, we're, we're, we'll report wherever the evidence takes us, sure. wherever the evidence takes us. Um, The problem I have with this is, first of all, there's sort of the the boy who cried wolf phenomenon. Uh, We've heard this over and over again now uh, since 2011, um, that Al-Qaeda was decimated on the road to defeat a shadow of its former self. I mean, there's all these sort of buzz phrases. And, you know, look, you can debate the the degree to which it threatens the West and, you know, we can, you know, manage it abroad and and stymie tech, Sure. okay, but. You know, this a lot of times these assessments are not rooted in actual observation. They're sort of rooted in sort of policy desires, um, you know. And so we've heard this over and over again. Now, of course, in in the in the Aesop fable of the boy who cried wolf, eventually the wolf does come. Eventually, the boy says, "Oh, there's a wolf who's coming for your flock," and actually the wolf does come and it turns out to be true. And so you could point to that when it came to like the Mullah Omar phenomenon. I remember, we dozens, you know, we heard that he was dead a number of times, and finally he actually was dead, right? Um, so, you know, you can never rule out any these possibilities, but I just, I thought, I find it curious because when I look at this stuff though, it's not based really on analysis, right? So a lot of these people were saying, well, they're one or two leaders away from the whole thing crumbling. There are a lot of assumptions baked into that, right? There are a lot of assumptions. Like they, they're making assumptions about Al Qaeda's internal workings or lack of cohesion internally, which I think there's contradictory evidence on that. Of course, they're making assumptions about, um, the um, viability and accessibility of potential leaders to take over for Zawahiri and Abu Muhammad al-Mazri and others. You and I are working on a list of guys that we think are in the pecking order. Bill, um, we're going to come out yeah. with that at some point. We're going to. I'm uh, looking forward to yeah, that. There, yes. there are a number of guys who, you, you know, like when I see this, these people saying this that, um, you know, well if Zawahiri's, you know, dead, then the whole thing crumbles. You got to wonder when I look at that. I'm like, is that the only name these people know? Right. Because it's it seems to be right. Because, you know, when you look at some of the other guys that are out there, I mean, not just al Auto, but they're a whole their whole. It's a whole cadre of veterans we can point to. Um, so presumably intelligence officials can as well. Um, now, would they have the, the ability to keep everything together? Would would if Zawahiri were to finally die, let's say, or be dead and, you know, the network, we'd we'd get a test, right? We'd be able to test this theory that they're going to crumble because we'd see who swore by out to the new emir or who didn't right? That's one of those things you'd be able to to take a look at. But, you know, the thing is that I just remember about all this is that, and again, I'm just trying to think through the epistemology here of all this, which I don't think people are doing, right? They just sort of run with their sort of preconceived biases, right? if there are certain analysts who have been saying for years, Al-Qaeda is just, you know, internally this nothing burger in terms of an organization. They don't really have an organization. They're just sort of this weakling that just is going to be put down any moment here. Um, And sort of they use this this framework of these reported this rumor about Zawahiri plus the the reports of the actual Abu Mahal, Masri and others dying being killed to say look we're back to that point again where the whole thing's going to crumble and again you know just looking at that I remember when Zawahiri took over for Bin Laden we heard that Zawahiri you know the whole network was going to crumble after Bin Laden's death too that Bin Laden's death was sort of this this huge blow for Al Qaeda globally and it just wasn't I mean it was a blow sure and you could argue that it created problems with it fueled problems with ISIS and that. You know, there's all sorts of effects from it, sure, you know, but it wasn't the end all be all. It wasn't the end of the organization,
1: yeah tom we we did this in a previous episode. I mean, we did a rundown of where al Qaeda is today, and i I think if you look at it objectively, al Qaeda in the nine years since bin Laden's death is is it's either been a push or a net win. I mean, it launched a new branch. Yes, it has problems in Iraq and Syria. Um, and it's you know it's held at Stan pat or had made some gains in in other theaters. Well, I think yeah so. they probably
0: you know they've probably gone backwards a little bit at Yemen at times and all elsewhere. Yeah, 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 right. And, and that's the yeah. ebb and flow of jihad sure. that we talk about. But
1: they haven't been eliminated in any in any but of the. Its the theaters. assumption
0: underlying this whole Al Qaeda crumbles when these guys die. Bill, as you know, is that none of those groups are really Al Qaeda, right? The, the idea is that sort of the implicit assumption is that there is no international organization that there is no sort of. Um, internal structure to the group and that these others are just affiliates that are just sort of loosely connected in some way via ideology or just sort of flying the banner or flying using the name and not really part of an organization and we dispute that based on a lot of evidence i mean that just
1: yeah including what al-qaeda says about itself it calls these organizations it's theaters of jihad it then and it admits it has
0: a general command and then it has theaters theaters in the, yeah, and know, then members of the general the, command, which is the senior management, aren't just in Afghanistan and Pakistan. We've, we've gone right. through this over and over again that they're in other places, you know. Yeah. Um, Tom, I'm going to read from from your report on, on Abu
1: Karab, um, I'm sorry, on Abu Muhammad al-Masri. And it says the, the signatories, those who signed, you know, the succession, it said, agreed to move down the chain of command until one of Zawahiri's deputies was appropriately situated to accept his oath. And then it all, But prior to that, you say, the, the oath stipulated that each of Al-Qaeda that each Al Qaeda leader um, must physically be located in the Khorasan, which is Afghanistan, Pakistan, or possibly parts of the surrounding countries, or in one of Al Qaeda's regional branches. So it wasn't saying it needed to just be in Afghanistan, Pakistan. He had to be in one of the, one of Al Qaeda's theaters, and that's that's Yemen, and that's or Syria, and that's in Iraq. And folks, in I, I link to the
0: originals of those chain of those line of succession letters, and you can see that's based on my uh, translations of them and interpretations of them, which I think hold up. Um, but you can see the originals at Lone War Journal. I mean, the point is there. I mean, their their own internal correspondence, refer. You know, it's one of many ways in which they're referring to an international organization. It's not this idea that you just have some senior figures somewhere. You know, it's it's one of those things. When I used to go on cable news years ago, I kind of one of my funny lines, and I give myself credit here. I think my TV performances are sort of a, a mixed bag. Let's just say. Uh, but but it, it, one of my one of my high notes was you know I said um, you know. The assumption about Al Qaeda was that they're just a handful of leaders waiting to be droned to death in a cave somewhere, and if we just get them, the whole thing crumbles. I said that years ago on Fox. That, that was, I think, it was Fox News when I used to go on there. Uh, you know, years ago, that was one of the the assumptions that was made about um, Al Qaeda, and here we are replaying the same assumptions over again. Now, you know, again, at some point, you know, look, I mean, if 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 we get this test and Zawahiri does die or has died or whatever. Right. The world's tiny soldier gets them, you know, rooting again, we're rooting for COVID in that case. Um, you know, we're going to get a test to see who swears or or allegiance to the new emir. And that's a sort of a, a, a big first test. And there's other tests. But the point is that there's other evidence of internal cohesion of the network as well. I mean, one of the obvious ways to do that, and this is something that some uh, commentators deride, but it has more significance than they want to let on, is you can see it in like how their media operates. You can see that the media houses for Al Qaeda across the different what they call branches or theaters. You know they have consistent branding, they celebrate one another. They have these, they put the, the mini houses logos next to each other to show unity. Um, you know, I I sent you some screenshots built from one of those telegram feeds for Al-Qaeda where you know the, the guy that guy was saying, you know, look, um, you know, everybody talks about Al Qaeda as if there's like these branches and then there's this central organization and they're two different things, but really it's just all one organization, one, one group. Now that doesn't mean that there isn't – that, that it's a monolith, that there aren't internal problems, and that there aren't problems with each of the branches, and that they're you – know, not everybody – you know, people aren't automatons. Jihadis aren't automatons. You know, They're not these audiological robots who are answering in lockstep. There's all sorts of issues, and some people are probably more committed to the cause than others. Sure. Okay, fine. But the interesting thing is the default assumption on al-Qaeda that we're dealing with all these years later in 2020, and it is the default – is that there's no cohesion internally at all, and that's been disproven over and over again. And so now we're being asked, basically, with reports of these senior leaders' deaths, to believe it's true once again.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, this is why my skepticism—if if you listeners can't detect it—is quite high on on all of these points. Is, is he dead? And is Al Qaeda at the edge of defeat? When I hear an argument for almost ten years that Al Qaeda is. Um, defeated and disorganized and meaningless and all that, and yet people have to continue making the same argument year after year after year, then maybe the opposite is true. And then that's what I strongly suspect here. But then again, I'm willing to uh, accept evidence to the contrary.
0: Yeah, I'm always willing to update my uh, analysis based on evidence. I don't think some of the folks that are pitching this uh, al-Qaeda is one or two guys away from crumbling are though. Um, But you know, so. We talked about this in a previous episode. We're going to talk about it again in a future episode. But part of this comes down to defining Al-Qaeda and doing the, the work of, okay, what does the management committee look like? What does the, you know, the Shura Council, what is the Shura who are the members of the Shura Council? Some of those Shura Council members who sign those letters we've been talking about, they're still alive as far as we know, right? So they're still in the yeah, game. Yeah, Tom, yeah. Abu Khair, I mean, I'm sorry, Abu Muhammad al-Masri
1: and Safe Al they've been on Al-Qaeda's Shura committee and, and leading one of its its organizations. For what twenty five, thirty years now? I mean, yeah, that's career senior management, anyway. yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. part of senior yeah, management right. in one one form or another, leading a committee or being on the on, on the
0: executive shore, or being a line both. of succession, or. But the point is exactly how many more of these? I mean, so you have a number of veterans. We can point to some of them. We're going to get into that a little bit, you know. You know, I mean, there's all sorts of guys like Abdul Rahman al-Mugrebi, you know, Hamza al-Ghamdi, you know, I mean, there's this guy I can go on and on. There's other guys like that, too, that we're going to get into. We know we're still out there. Yeah, we're following you guys. You know, if you, we know some of your jihadis listen to the podcast, too. Uh, you, I, you know, I've had some people tell me I need to talk slower. But I think, you know, the, the fact that I talk fast makes it more difficult for them to translate some of our stuff in Arabic. <laughs> so uh, that's probably a good thing, too. Um, but in any event, uh, you know there's a whole bunch of them. And, you know, now we don't, you know, we don't know how, what their leadership credentials are, or their skills are like, or how effective they are. I mean, it's tough to assess all this, but the point is, is that a lot of these, a lot of what we see reported around these death of senior al is there's always this assumption. that it's just, it's just the one name I know, you know, and if he's gone, then the whole thing's gone. Right. And it just, I don't, I think that's a gross caricature of the whole situation. Um, but you know, let's, let's talk about one other guy who just popped up. Um, you know, we've been we've been waiting for this announcement for a while, and it was no surprise. It was actually the opposite of surprise. It was basically exactly what we expected, and I reported at the Times what we expected, is AQIM finally named its new emir. Uh, Abu Obeda Yusuf Al-Anabi, um, a longtime member, uh, head of the Council of Notables within AQIM. Which is uh, kind of a cool thing. I think we need a Council of Notables at Longwood Journal, actually. Don't you think? That'd be kind sure. of, we should have some. Yeah,
1: that would be great. We should, we've got to work on that. Some, yeah, I, get on I that. kind
0: of like that idea. Let's have a Council of Notables. Um, but so they have a, a, a Council of Notables, and this guy was ahead of it for a long time. And we suspected, you know, not just because he was publicly facing and was in all their media and was commenting on, on matters far abroad. But for a lot of reasons, given his pedigree and sort of his importance in the organization, which was could be discerned from a very variety of sources, um, this was the guy we thought would most, most likely be the new emir. But, you know, you never know. There's some internal jockeying maybe. And, you know, these, again, these are human organizations. There's all sorts of things that could have been going on behind the scenes. But finally, it was more than five months after Malik Dirkdel, who was the first emir of AQAM, was killed. It took them a while to announce that Abu Abeya Yusuf Al-Nabi is Al-Nabi is now the new emir. And it's sort of curious it took that long. I don't have any insight into why, Bill. I know you don't either, right?
1: No, we don't. I mean, we, we suspect that they've not wanted to announce uh, some deaths to give uh, victories, but we don't really know the our, answer.
0: Our colleague, Caleb Boyce, reminded me, though, that the AQIM did fairly fairly quickly did concede that Dell was killed. Um, it's just they didn't announce his successor, which is what's sort of a, a, a weird thing. And now – you know, Al Qaeda has, you know, there's a mourning period when the emir is killed of any one of these branches usually and it takes some time to for them to announce a successor. But um, this went beyond the mourning period, and I'm not sure why. It's an interesting question. Um, you know, one of the things here about AQAM, this is this is a good example of this is an organization that we heard for a long time ago it wasn't really Al Qaeda. Remember, this was the whole idea that it was just they took the Al-Qaeda name for branding, but they weren't really part of Al-Qaeda. And, of course, there's, you can disprove that based on a lot of different sources as well. Um, you know, one of the things we've heard but haven't confirmed is that Al-Qaeda actually has now this cross-regional Shura Council, which involves members of the different branches who are sort of on one body. Some have referred to it as the Ummah Shura. I'm still working to confirm that, and I'm, I'm curious if, you know, who within AQAM, if not Al-Nabi, then somebody else is on it. And we're working on that story, try and confirm it or, or you know, Basically, show that's not true. Either way, we're trying to figure out what the deal is there. But um, there are good reasons to suspect that you know this is all part of the you know the uh, international organization of Al Qaeda. You know, I, I revisited in writing up Al Nabi's appointment. I, I revisited what the French said about Truptel that he was the third deputy of Zawahiri and part of Al Qaeda's management committee. You know, of course, the U.S. government and in its infinite wisdom has not confirmed any of that or actually explained if that's true or not. Um, but that's it gets back to the whole defining Al Qaeda thing, right, Bill? That we, yeah, Tom, still, you're reading my mind. Still, on still this. don't it's have a, you know, there's still not any common definition of this thing, certainly not in analytic circles, which brings all sorts of stuff out. But even, you know, the US government hasn't put out any sort of clear eyed assessment of this stuff in years.
1: Yeah. And, you know, and Tom, you know, I, I just keep going back to, you know, okay, so why didn't they name um, Anabi, right? I, there's, there could be other reasons. It could be, maybe it was security. Maybe they didn't want to identify the next Amir, but look, the reality is, is the French know just as you and, and you and Caleb, I I, I got to give you credit. I think w- when we did the, um, when Caleb was on that uh, previous episode, we, uh, you guys were basically were very adamant that he was very likely successful. I mean, the, the day that Drew Dale's Dr. death killed. was reported, yeah. it
0: was the first. Yeah. And it wasn't just because he's the only name we know, by the way, you know, it's not guys that are, were possibilities too, you know? But just in terms of his pedigree and his dossier, it made the most sense, you know. That he- it, it definitely did, and in, in, uh, just I just I, I always go
1: back that that was a, a a very good. It's like uh, Khaled Petarki. Remember on
0: AQAP, there was speculation right. about who Got was going to be the successor yeah. there. We picked him out as the guy who was most likely going to be the new AQAP Amir, and he was. Um, again, there were other possibilities there. There were three or other four chief uh, guys who could have been the new amir of aqap but let's let's talk about this for a second now because now you have again i know we're re- revisiting retreading old ground here but you have abu Muhammad mazri second deputy of al-qaeda or deputy mayor of al-qaeda killed in august of this year you had september of last year at Asim mar the head of aqis killed in january of this year you had um al rami killed an AQAP for aqaps amir and then in early June, you had Abdul-Malik Drupdell killed. You had a series of guys in Syria killed. Um, so, you know, look, you can point to this series of guys who were killed, who were senior al-Qaeda leaders and it ha- absolutely has to have an effect on the organization in, in one way or another. But the question always comes down to how many more of these guys are there. And that's what we just keep asking the same question and nobody really has a good answer. right?
1: Yeah, and and, and Anabi is certainly... A capable, capable step in. I mean, as we've mentioned numerous times, Druk Dell was the head of AQIM when it was founded. And even Prior 2006 to, that, to right? 2007, GS- you know, depending on which day right. you might
0: pick, it's really 2006. But, um, you know, so 14 years, you know, he's the head of AQIM. Before that, he was head of GSPC. It's a predecessor organization. Anabi's, you know, has a career that stretches back to the 1990s himself. Um, you know, this, so this, you know, they're still going through the first generation, right, of jihadis. Right.
1: And That's really what it boils down to, Tom. Still They're going, going the first generation. We're watching the end of the first generation. At the end of the first generation. Well, now this right? other There's,
0: assumption that you can see implicit in some of like this whole "Al Qaeda is going to crumble any day now" sort of narrative is that there isn't a second generation or a new right. generation. Even though in Bin Laden's files he specifically discusses raising a new generation to replace the fallen comrades, and again, we can name a bunch of guys who are in that bucket from that new generation. And what what are they doing? What are their roles in all this? And how are they planning to lead the organization or not, you know, going forward? Um, You know, again, these are all just getting to the questions, the epistemology of it all, that sort of these questions that are not asked, let alone answered so often in our field. Right. Yeah, Tom, I
1: go back to that that file we we constantly talk about where I think there was around 15 or 17 up and coming. Al Qaeda leaders. Some of them we killed, some of them we know are still alive,
0: like you see That's the al-Suri. one you see, you know, Surrey's the leader of it on uh, the, the yeah, first profile uh, uh, in it, right? By the way, in Iran, right? <laughs> so, uh, you right. Know, he, He's, right. These are all and, facilitators, and, are yeah, some... and they've got these very funny sort of uh, commentaries on the different guys. Like one of the guys was portly, you know, and sort of out of shape right. physically, and the other guys are hotheads. It's just funny internal commentary. This is stuff that was found, folks, found in Bin Laden's compound, personnel files, summaries of some of the up and coming facilitators, and sort of judging whether or not they're suitable for future leadership positions.
1: And a couple of these guys,
0: we don't even know who they are
1: and we don't know what their status is. And th- this is this is the unknown unknowns, right? That we don't even know what's out there. And then, you know, and, and, those are the guys that were what
0: the silent commanders, they used to call them, right? Or something. Yes, like That's that exactly. that what they used to call. That's uh, ex- that one of the things, terms we came we found out about years ago for Al Qaeda is they have these guys who are the sort of silent warriors or silent commanders who, you know, they don't advertise their role and stuff. And because they don't advertise their role and what they're doing, you know, the assumption in the West or a lot of American counterterrorism circles is they don't exist, which is not the case, right?
1: And yet they were important enough to get up to the highest levels of Al-Qaeda's leadership. I believe Atiyah Abdul-Rahman was one of – was addressed in that memo, if I recall, or he may have written it up. Or, I, well, no, I mean, Atia Abdul-Rahman,
0: one of the things that was sort of – this was on the, one of the other myths about all this was that Bin Laden was inactive. Uh, you know, Again, where I'm, I'm giving away some of the stuff that we're going to do in a future episode, but this myth that Bin Laden was inactive and just sitting around watching Al Jazeera at the time of his death – wasn't true. I mean, he was receiving these, what we've termed the management papers from Atiyah Abdelrahman. Now, here's an interesting question for you folks. If you're out there in Intel world thinking about this stuff, um, you know, so the Bin Laden files, you can read Mike Morell's book, The Great War. You can read various other sources, our reporting other stuff. There's this other reporting out there that gets this right that shows that the Bin Laden files conclusively disproved the idea that Bin Laden was out of the game, that he was actually an active manager or even micromanager with Al-Qaeda's global network. And they he had a staff, including Atiyah Abdelrahman, who was sort of his point man for the outer world. It was sort of siphoning or funneling messages from his lieutenants in various places, uh, various theaters, back to the mothership, back to Bin Laden. Um, you know, you can see in those same files, as I would hear he's running his own management uh, circle, you know. And the question is, who's playing that role of Tia Abdel Rahman today for Ayman al-Zawahiri? We have some guesses. And we're going to get into that in the future. But um, the point is is that, the again, this is one of these these things about all this that you see these assumptions made about al-Qaeda, um, where they're about who's who and who's in the game and who isn't. And there are always there's always evidence that people just aren't aware of, I guess, that that basically there are other figures still out there. Um, and you can identify them. And that, that doesn't get into Yeah, absolutely, Tom. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to that episode. It's going to be fun. All right. So we got, I guess we should probably uh, conclude here briefly on a Afghanistan roundup. Um, We did a previous episode, What Will Joe Biden Do? Um, He's sort of been left with uh, no good options really on Afghanistan. Um, And you can see the Taliban, there's some recent, this Taliban has unleashed all sorts of suicide bombers since this phony February 29th peace deal that they signed with the of the U S which of course was a withdrawal deal all along for the U S um, there's been some recent high profile attacks in Afghanistan by suicide bombers. I think we're still working to confirm who did those. We haven't seen any claims of responsibility on a lot of those. Right bill. Um, so yeah, that's correct. Still looking at those, but you know, basically the war is raging on and Afghan forces are taking casualties. Of course um, you have anything to add on Afghanistan. I guess, you know, looking at all this, I'm just struck by, you know, I don't think a lot of the reporting is really sort of processed that the decision-making has to be made within the Biden team now and stuff.
1: Yeah, I, I he's certainly in a hole here. Trump is definitely leaving him with a mess in Afghanistan. He's going to be put in a position if he wants to leave, as we mentioned last week, a couple weeks ago. Um, yeah. If, yeah. A couple of weeks. Wow. Time. Um, if he needs to, um, or if he wants, he's either going to have to discount the deal, um, he's going to have to denounce it or pull out of it, however you want to put it, if he wants to keep some troops because the Taliban isn't going to that. So the U.S. To is, da- is, down to, is going
0: to be down to about 2,500, down to 2500 to January, troops right? Right. right? So the question yep. is if he wants to keep that presence, which is a small presence um, beyond April or May of 2021, he's going to have to nullify the agreement with the Taliban, which was a charade anyway. a fiasco anyway. There's nothing the, – the, the agreement is not worth the paper it's printed on. So. Um. Yeah. You know, the, the Taliban hasn't done anything, uh, and you know the counterterrorism assurance. it showed up. Right. That's all it's yeah. done. It showed up at the and talks we, in we've, you know, we've, yeah. right. we've wiped the floor with its We've used it to we've wiped the floor with counterterrorism insurance. Previously, we're not going to do that again. So, um, you know, basically, if he wants to do that, if he doesn't want to do that, and he just wants to withdraw completely. Then, uh, of course, you risk very early on in the administration, you know, Kabul being sacked or you know a massive, you know, again crisis in Afghanistan, which is in crisis mode anyway. Um, which is possible. Um, and the other option would be to increase troops, which you and I don't see as politically viable at all. And it's just not going to happen. He's not going to send, we don't think so anyway. We don't think he's, Biden's going to want to send more troops to Afghanistan. So you got three options. One stays with the current 2,500 or so uh, as of his inauguration day, in which case he has to nullify the worthless agreement with the Taliban, the submissive agreement with the Taliban, uh, submissive on the American part. Uh, two, uh, he'd have to full withdrawal, which either consistent with the agreement, so called agreement, or just in general anyway, or uh, which is possible, or three, increase troops, which we don't think is going to happen for political and other reasons. So, you know, that's basically none of those are great options. That's the point. None of those are good options at all. Yeah. And, w- and while this is happening, the
1: Taliban has just stepped up attacks. Yesterday in Ghazni, they hit a base with a suicide attack that was housing commandos. 30 um, Afghan soldiers were killed. It's unclear if they were commandos. Um, the commandos are basically the best trained force in Afghanistan um, that is used to conduct the raids against the Taliban, Al Qaeda, Islamic State. But they're also put in this, this role of, of being basically a quick reaction force, which they're not very well suited given their training. So when they get stuck on a base. Or do they? It's it's not the best for them. Um, so the Taliban target them at every opportunity. It's not the first time. That if, if indeed it was 30 commandos killed or, or some number, it's not the first time. We've documented numerous uh, attacks like this by the Taliban. Suicide attacks, and this happened in Ghazni city, and then suicide attack in the capital of Kalat Khal- that targeted the pro- head of the provincial council there. They've killed a, a brigade commander in, in Baghlan. They've killed a uh, district uh, leader in Baghdis. And so the um you know district governor the taliban is on the offensive they said they would this they're doing exactly what they said they would do and this is going to put a lot of pressure on the on the uh an upcoming biden administration um as tom laid out the options very um very succinctly that's really what's in store uh, i don't see a good ending um for the people of afghanistan i i you know i think the taliban are, I think they're holding back right now too. Um uh, I think if they wanted to, they could take one or two provincial capitals. I'm not going to say where, but places in the South, it would be very difficult, particularly if the, when the U.S. draws down the 2,500 troops for the U.S. to provide any support.
0: Well, I think that's a cheery note to end this week's uh, abbreviated episode on what do you think, Bill. It's again, if, yes. if, yeah, again, we, I always warn you folks, this is not the place to come for happy talk in the middle of a pandemic or otherwise,
1: I, you know. I will say, Tom, on, on, I will, we'll end this on a happy note. And you laid this out earlier. It has been a good year killing senior Al Qaeda leaders. I guess our only objection is not enough and not quick enough. But you got some good names, um, to cross off the list. So maybe we'll get a couple more, but that seems to be the only, there's small victories. Um, probably the only victories we could hope for, um, in the next year to come. Yeah. And they,
0: and again, you know, the U.S. has prevented another, 9/11 style attack all these years, which is it's a big deal, you know. Um, they also failed on their own accord, and that's 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 a whole other episode. If you actually think that through, by the way, and why that why that is the case, it's actually a lot more complicated, I think, than people realize. But it's it's an interesting story in and of itself. So we'll have to come back to that at some point. But. Uh, we will leave it there with our little Afghan roundup at the end of this episode. We've got more to say on that in future episodes, of course, because we just can't get away from it, right, Bill? We keep always going. Every time I try to get out, they drag me back in. All right, so thank you for listening to this week's episode of Generation Jihad. Please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts, and we will see you again next week.